All right, well, um, we come to uh, the final section of chapter 11 tonight in Daniel 11, verses 36 to 45. Daniel 11 and 36 to 45 closes out our chapter. And as we continue on in this Daniel's final prophecy, which began in chapter 10 and goes all the way to chapter 12. And so we're absolutely arrested with the amazing details of prophecy specifically proclaimed in the verses which we've just studied. And the reason I think it is so fascinating is that prophecy often uses language that is by its nature and necessity nonspecific. We see terms like the last days or the end times. And those terms, although indicating a clear period, that period is really unknown and and not well understood. And that language tends to keep us from recognizing that some prophecy is so incredibly specific. And this is even true in much of the book of Daniel. Now we get incredibly specific details in Daniel's vision, particularly those of the 70 weeks, where we saw to the very day, the timing of the 69 weeks that began and moved forward to Messiah's being cut off. And we, of course, went over those in that message. But that still left that undefined period between the 69th and 70th week as unstated and unspecified until we get to that very specific 70th and final week, which we know as the tribulation. So although some great specificity, not the entire prophecy. And we did see direct indication of that unspecified period when we looked at that text. So it wasn't like we weren't told that there would be a break between the 69th and 70th week. But again, no indication of how long it would be. And you can go back and you can listen to those messages and refresh yourselves on those particulars. But already in Daniel 11, we've seen incredible specificity. Not necessarily defined when the original prophet was, prophecy was given in 536 BC. But looking at it now in the rearview mirror, that is historically, we understand the nearly inconceivable accuracy that these verses bring forward. Specifically of the kings of Media, Persia, and Greece in Alexander the Great and the 14 kings which followed him. And amazingly and mind-blowingly specific as we now see the text that Daniel was given from 250 to 400 years before the events and how it comes through with just incredible detail. And we have to ask the question... Why? Don't we? Why do we get this kind of specificity? Why do we get this kind of detail? Why does God give to Daniel these indications of of each of the kings, of their sons, of their daughters, of how all of this is going to interact? Because it seems like 
That specific detail must have a purpose. Why this phenomenally nuanced detail? And the answer is because of the material at the end of chapter 11. Simply stated, knowing nearly every nuance of the previous verses, it it gives us absolute assurance that what follows has the same level of accuracy. God gives us this detail that is just beyond consideration, beyond anything else we see in any other prophecy of Scripture. So that we can recognize that as he switches gears and he takes us into the yet future coming of Antichrist, that the very same accuracy exists in the verses that we're going to look at. Because we have that confidence in them. And it's so important for us to realize that nuance. Because now as we transition into the yet still future realm of Antichrist, the time that will usher in the return of Christ, which is where our theme comes from, and our theme for tonight's message you see there in your outlines is four features confirming for you the details of Christ's return. Four features confirming for you the details of Christ's return. That is because... All of these events of Antichrist are those which immediately precede the physical return to earth of the Lord. And this is what our title states emphatically. And I've titled our message for this evening, The Beginning of the End. The Beginning of the End. And we come to prophetic details found nowhere else in Scripture. A few weeks ago, we went back to Daniel 8 to see more detail and on Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And I want to do the same again tonight, so please turn back with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 8 and verse 21. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 21. And as you turn to Daniel 8.21, we're going to see a very broad introduction of Antichrist. Now this text is a case of near and far fulfillment. The near fulfillment being related to Antiochus IV Epiphanes and the far fulfillment being indicative of Antichrist. Now a lot of prophecy is that way. We look into the book of Isaiah, in fact, and we will often see three different levels of fulfillment within sections of Scripture and even within individual verses. The first fulfillment that we will see is near fulfillment, that which is usually in the period of less than 500 years. Then there can be an intermediate fulfillment. That period usually uh, within less than a thousand years. That intermediate fulfillment, typically the prophecies of the first advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. We think of texts like Isaiah 7, Isaiah 7, Isaiah. I almost said it like the English people do. Maybe I'll get that accent and sound real cool. Isaiah. Oh, the book of Isaiah, sorry. Um, Isaiah 7.14, Isaiah 9.6. And you know, as we've discussed it before, that Isaiah's chapter 7 through 11 are a specific section of the book of Isaiah called the scroll of Emmanuel. Because every chapter has a reference to Emmanuel, God with us. So, there are 
There's near fulfillment less than 500 years, intermediate fulfillment less than 1,000 years, and then far fulfillment. Anywhere from 2,000 to 2,500 to 3,000 years to we don't know how long because it hasn't happened yet. So three periods that can occur in one section of scripture and even in one verse. And here in Daniel 8 and verses 21 to 26, we find 27, we find near and far fulfillment. That is less than 500 years Antioch Epiphanes the fourth, and then the third range, which is far fulfillment, that the end times, the second coming of Christ. And those are important terms for you to understand, and it can be very complex in looking at prophecy. And I want you to kind of settle in your mind those three aspects, not just for here, but whenever you read any of the prophets, major or minor, you will see that same aspect. And so you can understand that you have to read it very, very carefully to get the details out of what's included there. This text, again, is that kind of a case. Now, some label this as typology. What is typology? Typology is when we see something referenced in the scripture at an earlier date that is typological of that which it will fulfill later. Now there's a lot of schools of thought on typology. And it's very, very broad. Many will say that typology only includes references that specifically use the word type in the New Testament. There are two of those. One is in Romans 514 where Adam is said to be a type of Christ the other one is in Hebrews 1119 where Abraham is said to be a type of Christ those are the two places we see that word used in connection with Christ now there are others who would say we should broaden that and we should consider Isaac as a type of Christ Isaac was taken to an altar. He was going to be sacrificed. But then some would say no because he wasn't. A ram was sacrificed instead. Some would say Jonah should be a type of Christ. Because he was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. And and Jesus himself referenced Jonah in the time that he would be in the tomb. Some would go further and, and say that anything that connects something that previously was a picture to that which seems to have more fulfillment is also typology, such as our text, i.e. that Antiochus Epiphanes was a type of Antichrist. I don't want to get into the weeds on where you ought to determine that. Personally, I find that Uh, And it's because of the way that I was taught typology that we ought to keep as narrow a focus as possible. That it, it, it certainly are those references that use the word type, but that in general it should be that which references Christ. And we may be able to broaden beyond those two verses. So is this typology or not? I don't know, depending on your definition. But if it's anywhere in the Bible... Um, it, it could be here, but again, it's a little bit questionable in my mind. But I just want you to be aware of that. So let's consider a few points. You can, again, go back to your message on our website. And because of this, I won't cover most of the details of these verses. 
However, in that message, I did not address any of the far fulfillment of Antichrist, as I knew we'd be coming back to it. So that message, when we looked at verses 8, 21 to 27, all we focused on was Antichrist. Now we're going to go beyond that, and we're going to pick up some of the details as related to Antichrist, instead of Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Earlier in chapter 8, as we uh, consider our text, verses 3 and 4, the beginning of the prophecy, and it shows us a ram with two horns that represented Media Persia. And remember from our chart here, that I know you all keep near and dear to your heart, next to your bed, is in chapter 8, this prophecy was written in 550 BC. So chapter 8 was written in 550 BC. And following this in verses 5 to 8 is a goat, which is Greece, with large horns, who is with a large horn, rather singular, which is Alexander the Great. And at the end of verse 8, the horn, Alexander the Great, is broken or killed, and four kings arise in his place. Then in verse 9, one horn comes up out of the four, and this is Antiochus the fourth, Epiphanes, and you can see your table to see how all of the four kings went to two kings, to the Ptolemaic kings and to the Seleucid kings. And we have those 14 that evolved from them. So let's read our verses beginning in verse 21 in chapter 8 just quickly to re- refresh ourselves on it. Daniel 8 and 21, please follow along in your copy of God's word. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. The broken horn and the four kings that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. In the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power, and he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people, and through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself in his heart, and he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes." But he will be broken without human agency. The vision of evenings and mornings which has been told is true, but keep the vision secret for it pertains to many days in the future. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business, but I was astounded at the vision and there was no one to explain it. So in verse 21, confirms the goat is Greece. Verse 22 shows the four kings with less authority. Again, our table indicates and our last messages have affirmed the constant power struggle that has been going on between the four realms that then went to the two. And in all of that, they were seeking to have the same power as Alexander the Great. Not only did they not, But the text tells us that they would not in verse 22 at the end, although not with his power. But that's what they wanted. That's what they're warring for. And that's what we had been going over in the past. 
Verse 23 indicates a time at the end of their kingdoms. That is the end of the four, which became the two, the Ptolemies and the Seleucid dynasties. You remember all those discussions about how we started with four, there was war going on between them, and all of the craziness that happens in the verses in chapter 11 uh, leading up to verse 35. The next line of verse 23 reads, when the transgressors have run their course. It's a very important line. The word transgressors is a participle. Now, I didn't understand what a participle was until I was about 46 years old and went to seminary to learn Greek. And very simply, a participle is a verb with an ing ending. Now, there's more to it than that, but that's close enough. So instead of he ran, he was running. And so that's kind of a a simple explanation of what a participle is. But this word for transgressor is a participle. This means it is literally translated as transgressing or rebelling or sinning. So when we see that word, this is talking about the action of sin, the ongoing sinning, the ongoing transgressing, the ongoing rebelling. And that has a big impact on our sentence. This references the sins of the kings, but there is also a clear indication that this is the end of sins and transgressions, which points to a far fulfillment at the last days. Literally, at the end of the millennial kingdom, after Satan is released from deceiving the nations and the great white throne judgment. That will be the point of the end of transgressions. That in Revelation 20 and verses 8 and 9. So we're talking about something that is far in the future when we consider this phrase as when the transgressing has run its course more appropriately. So at this end time. So with this in mind, there's a clear indication of Antichrist in view in verse 23. Lastly, in verse 23, we have the rising of a king who is insolent and skilled in intrigue. Now, this final phrase is literally translated in Hebrew as defiant or strong of face and causing to discern riddles. Now, this is not the word that we have seen before in chapter 11, verse 21, for intrigue. And again, we've got kind of an unfortunate translation with that duplication, but English has its limitations. So, although the the defiant or strong of face certainly applies to both Antiochus IV Epiphanes and to Antichrist, the latter causing to discern riddles is more in keeping with the deceit of Antichrist in the book of Revelation. So we see again another aspect that shows us that Antichrist is clearly in view, perhaps even more in view than Antiochus IV Epiphanes. This is a case of near fulfillment, particularly when we see this one who is defiant of face or strong of face, 
as clearly applying to Antioch, but more so this deceitful aspect of riddles as that which is attributable to Antichrist. And the book of Revelation gives us great understanding of that. The first part of verse 24 also applies to both men as demonic forces are behind both men. And Daniel 10 gave us a lot of indication of that where we saw this proclaimed so strongly. And it is Satan himself who is behind Antichrist as we know from the text in Revelation 13 and 2. 13 and 2 of Revelation. The extraordinary destruction and exertion of his will and killing of both Jews and Gentiles in verse 24 also applies to both men. But again, remember, Rome repeatedly repelled Antiochus. So this is more in keeping with Antichrist who formally tries to annihilate the entire Jewish nation. And we see more of this aspect of his moving forward. We recognize that it is not either of their own power and that both destroyed to an extraordinary degree and that they will both perform their will. But Antiochus' will was kind of nipped in the bud by Rome a couple times. Not so with Antichrist. Why is that? Because we're told in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that there will be the withdrawal of the restraining force of the Holy Spirit against sin. So this is why Antichrist will have more sway than did Antiochus. And the verse better in keeping with him than the former. He will destroy mighty men and holy people, both did. But again, recognize the Jewish nation as specifically the target for Antichrist. And his purpose, as repeatedly described here through our study, is to thwart God's plan against his people. And when we first consider that, we go, wait a minute. How can Antichrist thwart God's plan for his people? I mean, Messiah has already been revealed. So he can't change that. Initially, we know the attacks of Satan at the beginning of Genesis were to try to destroy mankind, to destroy the seed of the woman, so as to preclude the coming of Messiah. But he's unsuccessful in that. Messiah has come. So what's the issue? Why does he try to destroy Israel? Well, his purpose, again, is that plan of the final fulfillment, destroying the final fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. What's the big deal with that, the Abrahamic covenant? I mean, compared to Messiah. It's huge! Because all of God's word, all of God's plan is yea and amen. And if anything in God's word does not come to complete fulfillment, then God is not God. Then his word is not accurate. Then there is error in this scripture. So it's critical that the Abrahamic covenant come to fulfillment. All of God's promises must come true if he is truly God Almighty, and he is. Messiah is already revealed in Jesus of Nazareth. And if Antichrist and Satan can destroy the Jewish people, 
They would nullify the Abrahamic covenant and they would deny God's omnipotence and omniscience, not to mention several other of his perfections. So if the Abrahamic covenant is this important, and it absolutely is, and if Israel's nationalistic existence with all 12 tribes of Jacob, renamed Israel, is vital, and it absolutely is, then covenant theology, which holds that there is no future restoration of national Israel, is absolutely false. Now, as I try to say every time I address covenant theology. These are our true brothers and sisters in Christ. But they are seriously wrong when it comes to their perspective of eschatology and of the role of Israel and the church, which is the fundamental distinction between their point of view and ours. And it is all held right here in this text. Do you see this? Do you have any questions about this? This is so vitally important. This is the main distinction between the two focuses of conservative theology and of true Christ-honoring aspects of salvation. And if you don't, come grab me. Go grab Jim. You know, or any of our leaders, we would love to speak with you about that point. Well, verse 25 is again generally true of both men. The shrewdness, the success of deceit, the narcissistic insolence, the pride, the ease in which he destroys multitudes. By the way, the ESV has a little closer to the original Hebrew description here where it's literally translated and in ease he caused to be ruinous abundantly per the literal Hebrew in verse 25. So also with the opposition and being broken without human agency also both applicable to both men. That is assuming that we take Dr. MacArthur's position and I see no reason not to which says that Antiochus IV Epiphanes died due to insanity and disease of the bowels. Now, I'm sure there's an ethical or, or moral problem here with me, but I just love saying that about the enemies of the Lord. Insanity and disease of the bowels. Dude, you better wake up. That's no way to go. Now, there is, of course, the, the contrary perspective to that that sees that Antiochus died in battle. Um, we don't have as much authentication of that. But nonetheless, what we're seeing here is... That this is speaking about one broken without human agency. And that's exactly what we see going on. Now, speaking of these enemies of the Lord and the Lord himself. And by the way, I, I love to do that. There is another issue in verse 25. That is most certainly related to Antichrist even exponentially more than Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And it is the clause in verse 25, he will even oppose the prince 
of princes. It's accurate to say that the opposition is against God because we know God is a triune essence of three persons. So we can say that when he opposes himself against the prince of princes, that that is a reference to God. This is a very specific title, prince of princes. We discuss it in the message on this verse that the prince is not, hear me, is not a reference to a lower office, for instance, than a king. In fact, in the book of Daniel, what we see is the use of that term prince is to higher beings than humans. So it is not speaking of one less than a king. We also know that this is speaking of one particular individual. Look at it again at that fifth line of verse 25. It says the prince of princes, doesn't it? That's a very specific title and we discussed that again in the message on this verse. But in fact, in Daniel, as we see this higher elevation of this office, this term is specific to one individual. The grammar itself tells us that. He is the prince singular of princes, plural. This is one individual who fulfills this role, the prince of princes. Beloved, it is exactly the same as the term king of kings. Exactly the same as the term lord of lords. Who is that? Who is the king of kings? Who is the lord of lords? Who is it? Yeah, now I, I know that you're hesitant to, to talk in church, but I'm asking, who is this? Yes, it's Jesus Christ. That's right. The Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth. Yeshua HaMashiach. Some won't name Jesus as their king. And yet proclaim to be Christians. This is an oxymoron. I know that's not a great word or term to use. Because it's demeaning and negative. But it's true. There is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. But the Prince of Princes and the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. If Jesus of Nazareth is not the second person of the Trinity incarnate, then our Bibles have an error. And they do not because he is. I want to take a moment and play for you one of my favorite videos of all time. Uh, I hope you will enjoy it. I hope Jim doesn't boot me out when we finish. But I think that you will see the specificity and the importance of this topic. Brother, whenever you're ready. Nice and loud, please. The Bible says he's a king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. 
He's the King of heaven. He's the King of glory. He's the King of kings. And He is the Lord of lords. Now that's my King. David said the heavens declare the glory of God. And the fundament showeth His handiwork. No means of measure can define His limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his soulless supply. No barriers can hinder him from pouring out his blessing. Well, well, he's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. That's my king. He's God's son. He's a sinner's Savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands alone in himself. He's august. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's supreme. He's preeminent. Well, he's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the supreme problem in high criticism. He's a fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the cardinal necessity of spiritual religion. And that's my king. He's the miracle of the age. He's the superlative of everything good that you choose to call him. He's the only one able to supply all of our needs simultaneously. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He's God and he dies. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. Do you know him? Well, my king is a key of knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. He's a master of the mighty. He's a captain of the conquerors. He's the head of the heroes. He's the leader of the legislators. He's the overseer of the overcomers. He's the governor of governors. He's the prince of princes. He's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. Yeah. Yeah. That's my king. My king. Yeah. His office is manifold. His promise is sure. His light is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Well, I wish I could describe him to you, but he, he's indescribable. He's indescribable. Yes. He, he's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. I'm trying to tell you, the heavens of heavens cannot contain him, let alone a man explaining him. 
You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off of your hands. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. Yeah. He always has been, and he always will be. I'm talking about he had no predecessor, and he'll have no successor. There was nobody before him, and there'll be nobody after him. You can't even teach him, and he's not going to resign. That's my Is the kingdom and the power and the glory. The glory is all his. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever. And when you get through with all of the forever, then amen. Well, I wonder, it's my king, do you know him? Well, nobody can do it quite like Dr. Samuel Meshach uh, Lockridge, Uh, but I would encourage you, there are several versions of that, it's pretty special. But that's the reality. If there's any doubt in your mind about this, now is the hour of salvation. Don't let one more moment pass before you. Bow your knee and confess with your tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord. Come talk to me. Come talk to one of our leaders. Come down tonight. Call tonight. Email tonight. This is the time. Paul says to us in Acts chapter 17 and verse 30 and 31. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now is the time. Now is the hour of repentance. Because that day is coming. He has overlooked our ignorance. He has overlooked and taken care of our sin through the precious blood of his son. But he is declaring now, and I am declaring to you, and to all of you listening online, you must repent. You must turn from your sin. You must confess Christ as Lord. Because that day of judgment is coming. That day that we have seen with respect to the Antichrist. That fulfillment of prophecy that is coming forward in Daniel chapter 11. Let's take a minute and turn to Daniel chapter 11. I want to read through our verses as we consider these specific and singular references to the Antichrist. And so much better in the setting of our King of Kings. 
Verse 36 of chapter 11 in Daniel, then the king will do as he pleases and he will exalt and magnify himself above every God and will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished. For that which is decreed will be done. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. But instead, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. At the end time, the king of the south will collide with him and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships and he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. He will also enter the beautiful land and many countries will fall. But these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. But he will gain control over the hidden treasuries of gold and silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt. And Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. Well, we have set the stage for our discussion of Antichrist And we will return next week to dive in to verse 36 of chapter 11 as we look more fully into this beautiful text and passage that describes for us the beginning of the end and all of the details that will start with a religious cessation. So we'll look forward to seeing you, Lord willing, next week for even more excitement. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for the power that has been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Father, that you have sent your son to this earth to live amongst us, to endure the atrocities of this mire and sin-cursed earth so that he could be our perfect sacrificial substitute, so that he could fully take on your wrath against sinners. So that he could make atonement for those whom you have chosen. Lord, may tonight be that night when those either here or listening that don't don't acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Father, may there be a time of quietness in this evening. In the night watches that they go through tonight. May there be a time where you would for those that will not make that acknowledgement or bow their knees, that you would remove sleep from them, remove that gift of peace and rest, that they might ponder that Jesus, you alone are God, and that you have given us all things, that none will stand against you, 
And the Father, even the most horrific forces that Satan and his minions can muster will not touch and not thwart in one iota your perfect plan of salvation. How we praise you for your great love and the way that you reveal these things to us. Be with us as we go to our homes and strengthen us, Lord, to consider more fully your great love. And may you be honored as we seek to serve you and to return but a trifle of the rich gift you've given to us. And we give you praise for all of this, knowing that it is your work and asking it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.